This morning our passage is in Galatians 6 through 18. So I'm going to read it here. You can read on the screen. Uh, actually, I'm going to read off the screen just to make sure we match the, the translation there. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But to the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Have a seat, church. Well, thank you, Toby. Um, church, just so you know, Toby is the chairman of our board, and I just cannot tell you the investment he's made in this process and the leadership he's taken, the weight of all of that, um, while also leading his family and having his own jobs. Can we just give a little thanks to God for... He'll really appreciate that. He loves when everybody looks that up and claps for him, so... Well, and it really is exciting. I can't wait to see what... God's going to do in and through this church in the generations to come. That's something that's just uniquely exciting. And so uh, we're at the beginning of one journey, which is uh, a permanent church home presence in this community. And today we come to the end of another journey, which is our journey through the book of Galatians. So we finally come to the end. And as we come to the end of this marvelous letter about the gospel of grace and forgiveness and freedom, Paul goes out kind of guns blazing. Like there's, there, there's no bullets left in the chamber. He's leaving it all in the field. Whatever, whatever cliche you want to use, Paul is leaving it all out there. And honestly, that's a bit unique for his letters. It's a bit unique when it comes to Galatian compared, Galatians compared to his other letters. Because like if we're, we're coming up on July 4th, right? So we're going to have some July 4th celebrations. So if you think of Paul's letters or the ending of Paul's letters, like July 4th fireworks shows, most of his letters kind of end with a whimper. So it's a 4th of July fireworks that at the end just kind of goes, and it's done. Because he'll end his letters kind of, hey, greet this person, greet this person, hug this person, turn off the lights, take out the trash, so on and so forth. But not Galatians. Galatians is a Christ community July 4th gathering. Galatians is explosions in the sky at Mike High's house. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll see you Friday night. 
All right, we'll see you there because Galatians is just guns blazing. He's going to leave it all out there. And so with that being said, I've titled this closing sermon in the book of Galatians, A Not-So-Subtle Goodbye. It's a not-so-subtle goodbye, which is a perfect ending for a not-so-subtle letter. And we start in verse 6, where Paul continues a theme we spoke of last week, which is this theme of bearing one another's burdens. Bearing one another's burdens. In this case, the the pastors, the pastor-teacher. Look at verse 6. It says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Essentially what that's saying is take care of your pastor. I mean, this is one of the more important verses to apply. <laughs> this is, I have it on my wall. I mean, I see it every day when I, I'm just kidding. But that's really what it means. It really is what it means. And, and what it's implying is, yes, material, kind of a material compensation, but even more than that, this just a general of share with the one who shares with you, that they might minister as effectively as possible. Now, why would Paul put this in the letter? Because this was a different kind of concept. This was unique for the church and for Christians in that day. Like Jews, you had a teacher, but you would pay a tax. And so the tax would then go to the government or go to the ruling authorities, and they would pay the teacher. So this was a different system where you would give uh, joyfully and sacrificially that you would share with the one who taught, the one who shared with you. So they had to be taught this concept, and they had to practice it because it was, it, it was new. And, and it's really a blessing, just if I can say quickly as an aside, it's really a blessing for me to preach to a church that cares well for their pastors and, and really values the, the pastoral team and those who teach. Y'all know, if you were here last week, I told you I spent a good portion of my time in San Antonio a couple weeks ago. And what you need to know about San Antonio is my wife and I grew up there. I mean, between us, we have over 70 years of life in San Antonio. And that's where we have spent our life. And so we were there, and after about three or four days, we looked at each other, and we said, hey, when are we going home? You know, when are we going home? And there was this yearning and longing to go to what feels like home now, which is Little Rock. And that is in large part, and I mean this, that is in large part because of the way this church has loved us and and loved our family and cared for us and made this place home for us. And so we feel incredibly blessed in that. And so that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, share one another's burdens including the one who teaches you, share with them because you're going to, gets to his next concept, you're going to reap what you sow. If you don't care for the one teaching you, it's going to show in how they minister to you. And so he's going to go from this concept of bearing one another's burdens to reap what you sow, but he's going to expand it because it's more than just caring for your pastor. This concept of reap what you sow is something that's true for all of us in life and whatever we do. That, that we are going to reap what we sow. So look at verses 7 and 8. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so to sow here, okay, to sow literally means, it's the Greek word sperma. It means to scatter seed. Okay, that's what it means. 
So the, the, the word implies farming, cultivating. You scatter seed. You uh, plant and harvest. You sow and you reap. Okay? And the idea here is that future results stem from present choices. That future results stem from present choices. I, I mean, I'm sure my football coach in high school told me, maybe you heard it growing up, your attitude determines your choices. Your choices determine your habits. Your habits determine your character. Your character leads to your destiny. Right? And, and it's not always that simple. And I wouldn't pretend to say that's the way it works 100% of the time. But that is a principle that is generally true. It is a principle that is generally true in this life that you reap what you sow. And it's something that the book of Proverbs speaks about quite a bit. All right, so Proverbs 14, 21. Whoever brings blessing will be blessed. And one who waters will himself be watered. Proverbs 22, 8, whoever sows injustice reaps calamity. You reap what you sow. The generous, though, themselves will be blessed. Proverbs 10, 9, one of my favorites, says, whoever walks in integrity walks securely. But those who are crooked will be found out. Those who walk in crookedness will be found out, like, you will ultimately reap what you sow. And that is true relationally. It's true uh, financially. It is true professionally. And it's true spiritually. It's true spiritually. Because here's the deal. Everyone sows. You with me? Everyone sows and everyone reaps. It's not if you sow. It's what are you sowing? What, what are you scattering? What type of seed are you planting? What type of soil are you planting in? For as verse 8 says, for if you sow to your own flesh, you reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, from the Spirit you reap eternal life. And so it reminds us, or kind of takes us back a few weeks, to our time in Galatians 5. This, this contrast of this battle that is in all of us this battle raging of the flesh and the spirit. And one brings corruption and ultimately death, and the other brings eternal life. And, and what he's speaking of there is not just the eschatological eternal life, I'm going to heaven, but the quality of life in the presence of God in the here and now. So it's a qualitative and also a future expectation. And so you have this battle going on. And my old pastor used to use an illustration that always stuck with me about this. And he, and he talked about two dogs, how all of us have two dogs in us. We've got a flesh dog and a spirit dog. And they both exist. And the question is, which one are you feeding? Which dog are you feeding? Which one's the poodle and which one's the pit bull? And if you feed your spiritual dog once a month because you catch 30 minutes of a sermon online, that's not much of a diet. You're not getting much nutrients there. And if you feed the carnal dog five days a week, and then you're shocked that when temptation comes, you tend to always lose? Are you default to the flesh? Well, what do you expect? Which dog are you feeding? Which one's stronger? 
which one is healthier in your life. So don't be surprised. The, the path of the, see, the results of life reflect the choices you make, right? And the path of the righteous is to walk in the spirit and to starve the flesh. I see, I see my good earth people over here, right? And, and the key to a healthy garden, I think, is to water the flowers and kill the weeds. You got to do both, right? You got to cultivate that which you're growing and kill that which seeks to strangle it. And so it requires both. I walk in the spirit, I water the flowers, and I kill the flesh. I rip out the weeds that strangle the life in me and strangle the spirit's work in my life. And that's how we cultivate a healthy garden. That's how we cultivate a life where what we reap is what we sow is that which we've sown in the spirit. And you reap what you sow, maybe not today, but you will one day. You can't avoid consequences. The great author Robert Louis Stevenson put it this way. He said that sooner or later in life, we all sit down to a banquet of consequences. Sooner or later in life, we all sit down to a banquet of consequences. And that can be true personally, and that can be true societally or, or, or culturally. And, and I've thought about that quite, quite a bit, just even over the last couple of days, right? With the, with the major news of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And, and it's fascinating for somebody my age, too, because these last couple of days are the only days in my life that I have lived where Roe v. Wade is not the law of the land. Like, I've never lived in a world where it's not the law of the land. This, this, this ruling from 1973, according to the National Right to Life Committee, which is the nation's oldest pro-life organization, it estimates that 64 million abortions have taken place since 1973 in our country. And that's with data from Planned Parenthood and, and the CDC, 64 million. To put that in context, that's roughly 21 times the population of Arkansas. It's 21 Arkansas aborted over the last 50 years. It's just hard to fathom. It's not just the 64 million lives taken far too soon. It's the million upon millions of moms who've had to live in that pain who've had to deal with the consequences, have had to deal with the shame and, and the carnage from that. And it includes women in here. The statistics are, are across the board. There's women in here who've had abortions. There's women I, I've spoken to in our church who've had abortions. It's a ministry I've been in. In San Antonio, I, I led a ministry at our church, Redeemed and Restored. I was one of the leaders of it, and I did the funerals for moms and, and who aborted their kids. And so we would have ceremonies and funerals where we would walk through that process and talk about the grace of God and how it brings healing in their life. And it's not just moms, it's millions of dads. It's millions of dads, many of whom didn't even know, maybe knew, know they had a kid until it was too late if they ever found out at all. And so it's just tragic. And, and not only is it tragic, it's, it's fascinating even to see how a culture will reap what they sow. 
right? How a culture reap what they sow. Because you look at abortion and it went from illegal to maybe legal in certain circumstances. You had to go through a board, a medical board, to get the okay. And then it went from illegal to, to legal but taboo. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, you have to have it, but it, we're not going to talk about it. And then it went from legal, safe, and rare. Remember that? Legal, safe, and rare. And then it went to, no, it's, it's reproductive rights. So somehow it's an issue of social justice. And then you, you went to abortion celebrations and like parties. These public declarations of, look at me, look what I've done, how great is that? How does that happen? How do, how do you land in a place socially where the right to end a life is something that is celebrated? How does that happen? How does a society go from valuing human life based on the image of God to giving more rights to a bird than a baby? And I mean that. You cannot, did you know you can't mess with a bald eagle egg in our country? And I like bald eagles. I'm all for them. But did you know if you mess with a bald eagle egg in our country, you can be imprisoned? And, and it's, not just, it's not just birds, uh, sea turtles. You mess with a sea turtle egg in Florida, they had a law where you would, you could go to prison while abortion was legal right down the road. So that's when up is down and left is right, when birds and turtles have rights that babies don't have. How does that happen? Because you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. And if you sow in the flesh over and over, the desires of the flesh get bigger and bigger. You don't go backwards. The flesh doesn't go backwards. It snowballs, right? It snowballs. It's, like, it's kind of like people who have drug addictions. They, you typically don't go in reverse. You don't do heavy stuff and they go, I'm going I'm to take it back a notch. It goes deeper and deeper and harder and harder and bigger and bigger until one day you look up and turtle eggs have more rights than a child in the womb. And so in response to Friday, what I say is we celebrate. We celebrate that that law is no longer the law of our land. That it has been overturned. And we give thanks, we give deep thanks to God for that. It is a cause for deep gratitude. And, and I just want to give us three encouragements, maybe, as a church body, as we, as we move forward in the days to come. So let me just give you three encouragements. And I know that this is an issue. Yes. I mean, it's, it's tough, right? And it's explosive. And there's probably people in here who maybe don't even agree with what I say, and I, I get that. Okay? So let me, but at the same time, let me give three encouragements from where I'm standing. And the first one is this. As I said, give thanks. Praise the Lord that that is not, that, that this law has been overturned. And look, just laws don't always change hearts, but just laws reflect the heart of our Creator. So law itself doesn't necessarily change the heart, but a just law reflects the heart of our Creator. And so it's a good thing 
to have a just law. It's a good thing to protect the unborn, and it's wonderful news. And I know many of you have spent much of your life hoping for, the, hoping for this Friday through prayers, through counseling, through money, through time, through marches. And so we celebrate the news from Friday. We give thanks. Secondly, be humble. Be humble, right? Because if, if the ultimate goal is to change hearts and to save lives, let me know, let me, let me just know, let me just tell you one quick way to short circuit that, and that's to be a jerk. It's to be a jerk. To be pompous. To be arrogant. To be nasty. It's not Christian. It's not helpful. So don't do it. We're going to give thanks and we're going to be humble. Because like I said, obviously, we live in a world where people have passionate views on this issue in very different ways. And we have to recognize that. And that doesn't mean I'm going to cede a single inch. I ain't giving an inch. And at the same time, we don't need to be pompous about it. It does not help the cause of Christ, and it really doesn't help the cause of eliminating abortions ultimately because, as we know, it's still legal in many states. The overturning of Roe v. Wade doesn't mean abortion is illegal. It means it goes back to the states and the states to wrestle with it. David French, who's uh, a guy that I respect, who is an Ivy League lawyer and um, did a lot of First Amendment work and a lot of work in the pro-life movement, he wrote an article after the, the announcement, and he had this phrase in there that I thought was powerful. He said, pro-life Americans should greet the reversal of Roe with gratitude, but we should also demonstrate profound charity. Animosity undermines the cause for life, especially when culture is still more important than law in the quest to end abortion in America. It's still about changing hearts, right? It's still about a culture of life. And so our goal is not just to see abortion become illegal. Our goal is to develop such an ethic of life that abortion is unthinkable. It's unimaginable, right? That's the heartbeat. That's the desire. And so that means we press on. We press on. So we give thanks we walk in humility, and we press on. It's not that the work is over. It's not that the work is beginning. It's that the work is continuing, that we continue on the move, and that work is as important as it is and ever and, and to, to create a value of life, an ethic of, ethic of life, and across the board because we know that abortion is related to other things. It's not just women wanting to end the life of their baby. That There's complicated issues here. There's things like um, poverty, access to uh, health care, um, abuse, uh, women's uh, ability to get, uh, to get counsel. There, there, there's a lot of things associated that are connected to this, and we've got to lean in in a major way, as much as we can across the board. It's one of the reasons we've increased and that we will continue to increase our involvement and our engagement with some of these ministries that lead in these areas, whether it be caring hearts, 
and the way it ministers to women with unwanted and unexpected pregnancies and counsels them and gives them uh, medical care and, and sets them up for the possibility of raising their child, helps raise their child or giving them to adoption. That's why we lean in so hard with the call and believe in the power of foster and adopt. Because it's not just getting a legal decision, it's entering in a way to bring a culture of life across the board, a whole life pro-life for the baby, for the mom, in all its variety. And so that is our heart, that is our desire, and that's why we continue to press on. And so thanks be to God, while saying closing, thanks be to God for his favor, and thanks be to God for those of you who did not grow weary in doing good, who kept, kept getting after it, praying and persisting, right, over these past unfit, these past 50 years, defending the unborn, because for this week, this week we reaped what you sowed. We reaped what you, you sowed, and we press on. And that's a great lesson that really now moves into verse 9, right, because he talks about you reap what you sow, and now he's going to talk about do not grow weary. It says, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see, here's the thing. Because much of what we reap happens after we sow, even after this life, there is a tendency to what? To get discouraged. I did this, but it resulted in this. And so we get discouraged or we get cynical. I wonder, what, what does it matter anyways? Or we begin to doubt. Or we turn away and say, well, I'm just going to do what feels good because obviously doing good doesn't do me any good. And so we grow weary in doing good because the response or the consequences are not immediate. And so Paul leans in with an encouragement and he says, it is always good to do good. It is always good to do good. And so do not grow weary in doing good, for in due time you will reap the reward. And so we need to be reminded of God's goodness and how we must not grow weary in doing good, especially to those in the family of faith. So do not grow weary of doing good, church. Hang in there. Keep pressing on. Because it is always good to do good. And it starts within the household of faith as we reap what we sow. And then we get to verse 11, and Paul says, give me that pen. Give me that pen. My turn. And in verse 11, he says, so with, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So it's likely at this point in time, see, in that day, when you authored a letter like this, you would have what's called an, an amanuensis or a secretary, and you dictate the letter and they would write it down. But you might take the stylus, you might take the pen, so to speak, at the end of the letter, and, and then you write your postscript, or you write the, 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 final, the final few sentences. And so that's what Paul does here. And there was a noticeable difference on, the, on what they're reading, right? The, the, because the letters get big. And it's clear that someone else is kind of like when I'm writing and then I see my kids write, and I'm like, something happened here. Something changed, right? And so that's what's going on here. And so the large letters are probably a result or could be a result of a number of things. One, his poor eyesight, so he can't really see what he's writing. Two, maybe it's just emphasis. Like this is, listen up. 
I'm writing. And so follow me here, all right? And so he is, he, and, and really the final few verses sum up the entirety of the letter. He starts by attacking the agitators, these false teachers. So if you remember the context of the letter, this is his first letter, first missionary journey. He goes out into Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, evangelizes, they plant churches. He goes back home to Antioch. He's setting up shop. He's chilling out. And then he gets word, oh, these guys are turning. They're turning to a new gospel because these false teachers have come in. And so the letter of Galatians in itself is a response to these false teachers, to the church that's succumbed to the agitators, to these people who have come in. And so he's going he's gonna to speak to this. He says in verse 12, it is those, the agitators, the false teachers, who want to make a good showing in the flesh, who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. So what Paul's saying here is this, these people telling you to come under the law, hey, they're a bunch of fakes, They're a bunch of cowards. Their motivation is not your well-being. It's that they would avoid persecution because they don't want to swim upstream against their Jewish brethren. They don't want to go back to Jerusalem and say, yeah, it is Jesus alone and only Jesus and no law. They don't want to walk through the fire. They don't want to experience persecution. So they just say, well, let's fold Jesus in and still live under the law. And so Paul says, they're cowards. They're cowards. And not only that, they're hypocrites because they themselves don't keep the law. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. So they're all in on the Galatians doing it, but they can't do it. And they don't do it. I mean, some of you may remember this, maybe not, but there was a time when people got really frustrated about having to wear a mask. Y'all remember that? I mean, like, too soon? No? Okay. I'm all kinds of political this morning, but... Honestly, for the most part, this is me speaking personally, it didn't bother me. It didn't really bother me because, number one, if it helped in that time to be safer, I was cool with it. And number two, if it helped you feel more comfortable, somebody feel more comfortable, that's fine with me. But I'll tell you what was annoying and what did bother me is when you would see people talk about how everybody should be wearing masks, And then there would be pictures of them gallivanting in their social circles with no mask. They go, oh, that's funny. Mask for uh, V, but not for me, right? And so there there was a level of hypocrisy. There was this disconnect. And so Paul's arguing against their hypocrisy and railing against the disconnect between what they're telling and what they're actually doing. And that hypocrisy that the false teachers were living, that hypocrisy from masking is a hypocrisy that crushes a church and crushes Christian witness. Like it breaks my heart when you see Christians promote morality, lambast immorality, but then walk in the very thing they denounce right? It is utterly frustrating because it, it damages the cause of Christ. It damages our witness to stand from a mountaintop 
and make a moral argument, to speak to the immorality of an argument, and then to walk in that. That duplicitousness, that hypocrisy hurts our walk and crushes our witness. And I know none of us are perfect, and I'm no different. But please consider that. Even in the days leading from now, as we deal with all the cultural issues around us, please consider, and I wish all of us would consider the damage that is done to the witness of Christ when hypocrisy reigns in the church. Crushes. So we want to walk in integrity. We want to walk in authenticity. We want to be honest in our failures. Because we want to have credibility in what we, in what we say and what we teach. And the life that we call people to. And so Paul is saying, these agitators, they're cowards, they're hypocrites, they don't care about you, but I do. I am not a hypocrite. I'm the real McCoy. Verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Paul says, I just want to boast in one thing, and it's Jesus. I boast in Jesus. Period. That's what he's saying. And here's the deal. Because I'm a new creation, because I boast in Jesus, I have been crucified the world and the world's been crucified to me. And what he's saying there is I no longer need to walk in the worldly system, succumb to its worldly passions, or be seduced by the worldly pleasures. Like I'm free from that. The shine is off. I don't need the power. I've been crucified to the world. I don't need the prestige. I've been crucified to the world. I don't need any of that because I got Jesus. And I'm in. And that's why he says, all that matters at the end of the day is not what you do to your body. It's not any of that. What matters at the end of the day is are you a new creation? Born of the Spirit. Justified by faith. Walking in the power of God. Are you a new creation? And then in verse 16. Verse 16, Paul says, And for all who walk by this rule, Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And I hate to tell you this so late in a sermon and so late in the book of Galatians, but this is actually a really controversial, explosive verse. And it's kind of intramural, okay, within the church. But let me just talk for a second why this is such a debated verse. Where do I begin? 10.03. Okay. Begin in the middle. Um, what... Really, it has to do with how you understand Israel and promises to Israel. Because if you read your Old Testament, here's what you see over and over and over again. You see promises God makes to Israel about their flourishing, their restoration, their, oh, even after they've been exiled, their regathering. That has not been literally fulfilled as of right now. The modern-day state of Israel is not the regathering of Israel that's, that's promised in the Old Testament. So then the question that comes to theologians or to anybody who reads their Bible is, what do I do with the promises to Israel? How do I understand those? How do I navigate that? And, and there's really three main responses, and they all have variations. And I am simplifying something pretty complex but there's three responses with variations of how we handle these promises to Israel. One is that, well, God basically canceled his promises to Israel because they turned their back on him. Okay? 
So that's one approach. Another approach is that the church has replaced Israel. This is what's called replacement theology or supersessionism. So it's the idea that the promises made to Israel are being, are being fulfilled in the church because it is the true Israel. Okay? You with me? So that's the second approach. The third approach is that the promises are future. And this says they haven't happened, but they will happen. There will be a regathering. There will be a deep repentance amongst, amongst ethnic Jews. So those are really the three approaches to this text and or to this idea. And I'm going to show you why that matters, because even in this text, you're going to see it translated differently between two different translations. Because there's sometimes you get into the verses, you get into the Bible, and the Greek doesn't help. It can be translated multiple ways. And so when every translation involves theology, okay, because you have to make choices. You with me? So if you look at this text right here, it says, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. How many groups are in this verse? This is interactive. How many groups? Two. There's two groups. What are they? Those who walk by this rule and the Israel of God. So in this reading, you basically have those who walk by this rule, let's call them uh, believers, and then you have the Israel of God, which would be the Jews who've come to faith. But it's keeping them what? Distinct. Okay? The people who walk by this mercy, walk by this rule, and then the Israel of God, the true Israel, the Jews who've come to repentance. That's the ESV. If you're here this morning with an NIV translation, this is how the verse reads. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule to the Israel of God. How many groups? One. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule to the Israel of God. Well, who's the Israel of God? Those who, in this instance, those who follow this rule. You see what I'm saying? Not to confuse you. Not to confuse you. But I can't, I can't do that verse and not deal with it at all. Okay? So I, your pastor, when I teach, it's, you need to understand where I come from because this is called hermeneutics, right? This is how we understand the scriptures. I see a future uh, fulfillment in the nation of Israel. And that's going to affect a number of things, how I see eschatology, how I understand the end times. That's what eschatology is, how I understand a text like Romans 11 or Acts 1, how that fits into Revelation 20. It's that I see a future repentance restoration for the nation of Israel that is to come. There are plenty of godly people, people who I love the scriptures, who I respect and admire greatly, who disagree with that view. And they view it like a blank screen. I'm just kidding. They, they view it like this. That the Israel of God is the church. That's not how I view it. Okay? I view Israel and the church as, having, as being distinct. And that's how I read the scriptures. I think the scriptures keep them distinct all the way through. So I'm not going to press them together. But do you understand why that matters when you come to a text like this? Or is it too late in the sermon? Moving on. 
Verse, some of y'all are just like, keep going, and other y'all are like, okay, now get me back and finish the sermon. So I'll do that. Verse 17. But just understand, it has to do with how people understand the relationship of the church to Israel. That's what it has to do with, okay? Verse 17. He, Paul's going to start finishing this letter with a little bit of a dramatic flair. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. You know what the Greek word for marks is here? Stigmata. There's stigmata. So what Paul is saying here is that what he's likely saying, we don't totally know, is that he has scars to prove his faithfulness to Christ. Like I bear on my body the essence of my faith because by this time he had already been beat up and he would already have physical scars to prove that he had been through the ringer for his faith in Jesus. They want to avoid persecution. His body declares his commitment. That's what he's saying. I bear on my body the marks of Christ. His marks were his wounds in some ways. What are our marks? What are our marks? It's probably not being whipped or shipwrecked or stoned or beaten. So what are our marks? And I would contend our marks are the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5. It's the marks that we bear to show our allegiance to Christ. Because as we abide in him and as we walk by the Spirit, the fruit blossoms in our life. And I just want to point you this to this one. I know I'm going long. I'm going to finish. I promise. But I want you to notice, even as I've talked about a number of things today, when Paul ends his letter, why does he tell them that they can trust what he says? Because of how he's lived. Do you understand that? When he makes an appeal at the end of the letter of why they can trust his gospel, he says, because look at me. Look what I've been through. Look how I've cared for you. Know what I've done. His appeal is to his life. You with me? It matters. It matters how we live and how the gospel is proclaimed through our life and our deeds. Verse 18, finally, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Like a perfect verse to end this marvelous letter because it points to the gospel because the gospel is all about what? It's all about grace. It's all about grace from beginning to end. I mean, that's the book of Galatians. It comes through the person of Christ. It's all about Christ, his righteousness in me. And the Holy Spirit transforms our spirit. We are transformed by this grace that comes through Christ comes through Christ, and what does it do? It makes us a family. It makes us a family. So grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers, amen. And that is a book that deserves a huge amen, right? I'm fired up today. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise. We give you thanks. You are good. You are faithful. You are true. We love you. What a book. What a gift. What a gift the gospel is. And um, I am blown away by your love, by your grace on display. And uh, 
that time and time again we've been re being reminded of by this book, by this amazing letter. So thank you for this journey. Thank you for the past four months. Thank you for how it, your word is just living, breathing, and God, by your spirit, transforms us. So we give you praise, our Father. We give you thanks. We commit this time to you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.